Amen. Thank you both for that song. Beautifully done. Thank you for that song. Right. I think I'm ready to go. The last 12 weeks or so, we've been studying verse by verse through the book of Philippians, and we completed our study of that last Sunday morning. And the theme of the book is always rejoicing. It's a great reminder to each and every one of us that no matter what is taking place in our life, as a Christian, we should always be able to seek out biblical reasons for joy. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say, rejoice. One time at a small village church, the congregation had been going through a tough time. There was a wave of sickness that had wreaked havoc on the congregation. The weather was bad. Most of the congregation was unable to attend, and those who did noticed that something had caused a terrible smell in the church auditorium. The pastor was known for always finding one specific thing about that day to rejoice and praise the Lord and give thanks for. And the handful of people that were there began to wonder, what will he find reason in this day to thank God for? And as he led the congregation in prayer, he said, Lord, I would like to give thanks that every day is not like today. And if that be the only reason we find reason to give thanks for, we should always be able as Christians to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I've been saying 19 times, and depending on who you look at in the word count, I think it's actually 17 times in the King James translation that joy or rejoicing is mentioned in the book of Philippians in just four short chapters. And we know that Paul wrote the epistle from prison, so he was such a great example of showing to the church that he was writing to and to others around him that our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. But Paul lived out this verse, rejoice in the Lord always at all times, and again I say rejoice. And when he was sitting on a prison cellar floor with fresh stripes on his back, he still sang praises to God at midnight. He said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Whether I abound, whether I am in want, whether I'm full, whether I'm hungry, I've always been able to find a reason to praise the Lord and to rejoice. And I think it's so important for us as Christians to remember and to emphasize that God made joy. Joy is God's idea. It's not something that the world came up with and then God tried to come up with imitations for. But did you know that every good thing there is, is created by God? And every bad thing that exists is something that the devil simply took something that was good and tried to pervert it. Because the devil created nothing. God created it all. God made joy. God made a world full of beautiful color and diversity and foods and drinks and pleasures and music. God made all of these things. And while there are definitely ways that we can abuse them, God made joy. And I believe that God would want us to live a rejoicing life. And that we be careful that we do not teach to our children or to others, either by what we say or by the way that we are living, that we do not create or teach a joyless Christianity. My mom's grandmother said when she was older, the doctor put me on a diet. They said, what's the diet? She said, the doctor told me if it tastes good, then spit it out. 
And I think if we're not careful as Christians, we can get this idea of, well, if it's joyful, we have to spit it out. If it's enjoyable or pleasurable, it can't be from God. But we'll have more to say about it as we go along. But it's God who here in His Word expressly calls us to a life of joy and rejoicing. And God calls us to live a childlike, joyful faith. My daughter is three. She'll be four in October. And I just think one of the things already that I know I'm going to miss is when she gets old enough to not just have a simple joy in whatever we're doing. If I make eye contact with her and run across the room, she follows me. Where are we going? What are we doing? She laughs at my jokes and she's not embarrassed by me yet. She's just got this simple joy in whatever we're doing. But in like manner, God calls us to live a childlike, joyful faith where we look to our Heavenly Father and we say, whatever your plan is for me, help me to approach it with joy in my heart and not grudging or complaining. In Philippians 1.4, Paul prays with joy. In 1.18, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. In verse 25, he expresses confidence that he will remain living on earth for the sake of the Philippians and their joy in the faith. In chapter 2, in verse 2, he asked the Philippians to complete his joy. In verses 17 and 18, he is glad and rejoices with them. In verse 28, he says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you with this book so that you might rejoice. In verse 29, he tells them to receive Epaphroditus with joy. In chapter 3, verse 1, he tells the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 1, he tells them they are his joy and his crown. In Philippians 4.4, 4, he tells them twice to rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 10, he rejoices in the Lord at their concern and care for him. The word used here in chapter 4 for rejoicing, the translation of the word means to rejoice, to be glad, to rejoice exceedingly, to be well, to thrive. And in those days, they would use this word that was rooted in a meaning of joy and rejoicing as a greeting and as a salutation amongst one another. John Gill says on this verse in the idea of rejoice in the Lord always, Philippians 4, 4, he says there is a repetition of the exhortation in the preceding chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says rejoice in the Lord. In this verse, he says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice with this addition of always, for there is always cause and matter for rejoicing in Christ even in times of affliction, distress, and persecution, since He is always the same. His grace is always sufficient, and His blood has a continual virtue in it, and always speaks for peace and pardon. His righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and so is His salvation, and such is His love. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. The word used for joy in the epistle means cheerfulness, calm delight, gladness. And as I said before, could be all of our goal that we would achieve something well if we can live in this earth and the chaos and the daily distractions and be calmly happy because our names are written in heaven. We learned the background of the book was that Paul was thrown in prison by Nero and was a few years away from being uh, uh, martyred for the cause of Christ. 
But yet he expresses with great joy that the Lord is in his suffering. The Lord is in his trials. And it's funny, it's almost as if you could argue he's disagreeing with himself because he expresses over and over again in the same chapter, same line of thought. I am confident that I'm going to get out of this jail cell and come visit you. And then he says, but if I die, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He was not doubting whether or not the Lord would deliver his promises. He didn't believe both simultaneously. But he was saying, I believe by faith that God's going to let me walk out of here and keep serving him. But if not, then I will go to his presence and see him. So there's cause for joy either way. In chapter 1, he wrote that we should have confidence in Christ, being confident of this very thing, that God, which has begun a good work in us, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He then showed that his heart was not for his own glory or reputation, but for the advancement of the gospel. And he said, by my bonds, God is using my imprisonment to see more people at Rome preach the gospel and more people get saved. So whether they love me or hate me, I don't care. I'm rejoicing. I have cause for rejoicing. Rejoice, yea, and will rejoice that people are hearing of the gospel of Christ and are getting saved. In chapter 1, he also wrote about the glory of death. And we studied the verses, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain. For the Christian, we know that when we die, we will go to see the Lord. If we do not die, we will be called away in the rapture. But those who have died first will not be left out. For those who are dead in Christ shall rise first, then the living, and all the church will be on the cloud with Christ. In chapter 2, he wrote to the church that they should have unity and seek the mind of Christ. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11 are some of the most beautiful scriptures in all of the Bible. We believe that the early church would recite them and sing them as a hymn. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, if Christ was willing to step down from heaven, humble himself, become a man and die for our sins... Paul says, let each of you have that mind in humility and set aside your pride and your differences and seek unity within the church. In chapter 2, he called them to put their faith in motion and reminded them it's God that works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The end of chapter 2, we considered the topic of helpers and workers and how Paul set forth a pattern of mentoring and training other men younger than him in the ministry so that they could continue to serve the Lord in other places and also after he was gone. And he said, I'm sending Timothy to minister unto you that I may know how you're doing. You know the proof of Timothy. He served with me as a son does with his father and he will care about what what is best for you, not for himself. I have no other man like-minded that I can send, but God's provided for me, Timothy. And I'm also going to send back Epaphroditus to you. God has healed him from his sickness. After he delivered the offering that you took for me, he got sick. We thought he was going to die. And we said, God, please don't let this dear servant of the Lord from Philippi die. Because if he does, that church will have sorrow. And we want you to heal him so that the church will have rejoicing. In chapter 3, he gave the warnings, beware, beware of false teachers, beware of those who would teach the Jewish law and circumcision as necessary for salvation or as necessary to please the Lord. He said, beware of having confidence in the flesh. No man can earn his way to God. He said, if anyone could have faith and trust in the law, it's me because I've kept the law perfectly. I was blameless. 
Yet it led me to the absurdity of persecuting Christians and putting them to death, thinking that I was serving God. So let no one who lives think that they are able to please the Lord by keeping the works of the law. And he said, beware of loving anything more than you love Jesus Christ. Paul said, all of my ability, all of my knowledge, all of my standing within the Jewish synagogue, I took them and threw them overboard of the ship so that I could sail on for Christ. And I didn't whine about it. I didn't say, oh, I've given up so much for Jesus. He said, I count them all as refuse and trash that I may win Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, he told them, keep running forward for the Lord. Forget that which is behind and reach forth to that which is before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And we considered the fact that Paul compared the Christian life to athletics and to the running of a race in the Olympic Games and that we run forward. We don't look to the left or the right. We don't trail backwards on the path, but we keep running with the prize in mind. So too, in like manner, God wants us to run forward for Christ with the end goal in mind, which is hearing, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Then he gave them warning to not follow those who were worshiping the false God of appetite, whose God is their belly. They are enemies of the cross. They glory in things that they should be ashamed of and considered how prevalent that is in our day. Paul then remind them that Christ, when He comes, when He appears, He will change our vile body, that it shall be fashioned according unto His glorious body. In other words, the Christian is supposed to know, I'm not living this life to worship this body and its sensual desires. This body's going to die, be put in a grave, and turn to worms soon. But if I serve Christ with this body and deny my flesh, I will have no regrets in eternity. When Christ comes in the rapture, He will give us a new body, a glorified body that will not want to sin. And we live for Christ. We live with the new body in mind, not to worship our bodily desires now. In chapter 4, He said, Stand fast in the Lord. Standing fast, meaning to persevere, to be immovable, to come to a position or a belief and then cling to it and refuse to be moved from it. And he says, that which we have received of the Lord, we are to stand fast in it. We are to be faithful. We are to be found of the Lord when He comes consistently serving Him and clinging to what we know is right and true. He said, stand fast in unity, in rejoicing, in a lifestyle of moderation, in remembering that Christ is at hand and coming again, in prayer, in thanksgiving, in peace. And then last week we were taught through the Word of God that the rejoicing church is a giving church. People who are living for the Lord and always rejoicing look at their money and they say, Lord, how may I use this money as a blessing to advance the cause of Christ and advance the gospel? Paul said, I've received your offering and I'm rejoicing, not because I'm living for money, because I've learned that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me to abound or to be in want. It doesn't matter to me, but I rejoice in that you have given for I know that God will abound fruit to your account and God will bless you for giving. And because you are a giving people, my God will supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. This morning we'll consider briefly some biblical reasons for joy. And the Bible gives us reasons to be joyful. We're reading the Bible when we read rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the world, I will say, makes no sense apart from God's word. Take away the revealed truth that we have in the word of God. Look at the world around you and try to find meaning. Try to make it make sense. Try to find joy. And you can try. And the world is trying. 
And they're running headlong after pleasure and after fame and after money and after clout and seeking fulfillment and joy in it. But it's an endless pursuit. Some have said, well, how do we take the Bible and make it relevant to the day in which we live? And I think the opposite is true. What we look at around us isn't relevant unless we're seeing it through the lens of the Bible. Then it makes sense. That's true in 60 AD when this epistle was written and it's true today. Don't you just love the Bible this morning? Aren't you glad that God has given us His revealed truth written in His Word so that we may learn reason for joy? In the book of Nehemiah, they had finished rebuilding the wall. And after the wall was built around Jerusalem, they came before the the leaders of the congregation and they began to read the word of God. And as they read the word of God, their hearts were convicted that they had been disobeying God. And it led to a time of great mourning and weeping and repentance. And those can be good things. We need to know what's wrong. We need to repent. Paul said to the church at Corinth, I made you exceeding sorrowful, but I don't repent of that for God used it to bring about repentance and joy as a result of that godly sorrow. But as they were sorrowful from the reading of the word of God and how they neglected it, they were instructed. This is one of of our holy days. This is supposed to be a day of rejoicing. So we want you to know that though the word of God has given you reason to mourn and repent, we also want you to know that the reading of the law, the reading of the word of God gives you reason to rejoice. He said unto them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And what gives us strength to face whatever comes at us in this life is joy. Not just joy in our ability or in the fun that we can have, but the joy of the Lord. The joy that comes from believing in the Lord, from being instructed in the word of the Lord, that comes as a gift to his children from God himself. God gives me joy and that joy is my strength. And I think it's so important that in child rearing, we need to be careful of a home that's run like a military unit. Children need discipline. Children need to learn the truth. They need to be punished when they're wrong. But if the atmosphere is only that of always pushing, of always criticizing them or criticizing others, it can create feelings of, I can't live up to it. No matter what I do, no matter how hard I push, I'm not good enough and I need to escape these walls so that I can have freedom and I can have joy. But what we need is both. We need instruction. We need discipline. But we also need families where we laugh together. We do life together. And we're taught that God has made an exceedingly abundant, joyful life that we are supposed to share forever. And if there's joy within the structures that God has made, I don't have to break through those structures in order to seek that joy. And I believe as Christians, we should represent to the world around us that we have the joy of the Lord. That our God is, yes, a God of judgment. He's a God of wrath. The Bible teaches that. We can't deny it. But He's also a loving God. A poet wrote a poem decades, uh, centuries ago that was called The Happy Warrior. And politicians will like to claim that title and say, well, yes, I'm fighting on a crusade for this or that, but I'm not bitter. I'm a happy warrior. And I think that phrase could apply to the people of God so well. If we would say, Lord, help me be valiant for truth. Help me preach the gospel. Help me take a stand. 
but we don't want to project a jaded, angry, spiteful tone to the world around us. It would be easy for me to watch the news all week long and get and get upset by what I'm seeing and then come to the pulpit Sunday morning and unload about all of the current events and how angry it makes me. Now, sometimes we need to do that. We need to address what's going on in our culture. But as we're preaching the truth, we need to say, look, God's not surprised by the evil. Christians aren't surprised by the evil. We were always told this is going to come. We're lifting up the light. We don't just rage against the darkness. We shine the light. We're not just mad about what's wrong. We're shining our light on what is right so that people may turn from the darkness and to the light. And we need to project that our God is not a joyless God. He is not a cruel taskmaster. He is not a begrudging, withholding, cheap, impossible to please God, checking off hundreds of rules every day and looking at our life to say, well, they missed one. Hit the smite button. Take them out. Punish them. He's a God who's holy. And when we break His holy law, there will be natural consequences. Sometimes God Himself will chasten us. But the psalmist said, you know my frame. You understand that I am but dust. He knows before the foundation of the world the sins that we would commit. And He still loves us anyway. He still died for our sins anyway. And He looks at us as a child and says, I know you're not going to be perfect, but when you sin, repent, turn to me, set your heart to me, and I love you. And if you're doing the best you can, just remember your salvation is not in your ability to perform, but it's in my blood. And we don't look at a small child who doesn't obey and every time just want to fly off the handle and throw them out of our home and get rid of the small child. We love them. We know they're going to fail, but we want them to do the best that they can. Maybe some days we feel like just throwing them on out, but that's only the really bad ones. God is a kind, loving, merciful, lavish, perfectly good father who daily loads us with his benefits It's good to be a Christian. It's a joyful thing to follow the Lord. And I want that to be known by the words I say and by the manner in which I live that the people around me may see he's a child of God. He's got a joy that goes beyond getting knocked out drunk at the bar Friday night and then waking up Saturday with the same problems you had Friday night and a hangover on top of it. And there are so many different faiths and way of living And people who come from backgrounds that are Amish, Mennonite, Jewish, Islamic, and yes, I'm sure even fundamentalism, who have grown up with such a harsh environment that they have the idea of it's up to me to achieve. And here's what I have to get to. And here's what I have to keep. And if I'm failing to keep some of them, I better not go tell other people and get help for it because I'm sure that they've all got it together. And it's only me that's having a problem. And whatever the background is, we must not have this harsh view of God that every day if we didn't check off all ten of the ten things we were trying to get to, that all of a sudden God is angry at us. We can never earn our way to God. He gives us salvation. We cannot earn good standing with God. We cannot earn His blessing. It's a gift from Him. And yes, we try to live according to His Word and please Him in every way. But because we love Him, that should be our motive. Psalm 84.11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. You see, that was the very first accusation that Satan made to mankind to get them to sin and to go their own way. Is in the Garden of Eden, he went to Eve and he said, Why did God tell you not to eat of that fruit? 
Because God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. In other words, you know God's really not as good to you as you think you are. You know God's withholding something from you. If you break the bounds that God has sent, it will give you joy. It will give you more than you have now. But the Bible tells us that God withholds no good thing from us. We must remember that sin does not bring joy. Breaking the bounds that God has appointed is not what gives us a joyful life, but it's living according to the word of God and the truths contained therein. Proverbs 10.22, The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it. The devil likes to promise a lot of things if we go his way, but all of the devil's apples have a worm inside of it. All of his promises have a twist. All of his half-truths are accompanied with an ugly lie that bring destruction and death. But when God blesses us, there's no strings attached. There's no sorrow with it. It's from a heart of God that loves us. There's a fascinating verse in John 2.25. It says of Christ, He needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. The chapter in context goes on to say that the crowd pressed Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust Himself to them because He knew their heart. He knew that many of them were simply there for the show. He knew that many of them were simply coming out of curiosity, so He did not fully turn Himself over to that crowd and give them all of His heart and all of the truth and allow Himself to be arrested and crucified before it was the Father's time. But here we learn the truth that God knows man. So who has the answers for what makes mankind live a joyful life? It's the one who created man. It's the one who it says of Jesus in John chapter 1. He created everything. There was nothing made that was not by Him made. And if He created man, He knows man. He knows what is within man. And the truths that He has revealed to us in His Word are the key of finding out what gives us a happy, fulfilled, and joyful life. Not things that the Word of God calls sinful. Christ knows and sees the heart. So when the woman at the well came to him, he knew how to deal with her. He knew where she was at. He knew the sin that she was in. And he knew that if he turned her heart around, she would be used by him to reach an entire village for Christ. Nicodemus came to Christ, the rich young ruler, Peter himself, and all of them received individual unique messages from Christ because Christ knew their thoughts. He knew their heart. He knew their past. And He knew their future. He knows us because He made us. Revelation 4.11 tells us that all things were created for the pleasure of God. God created man not because He needed us or would be incapable of having a fulfilled existence without us, but God said, I want to create a creature that's in my own image and likeness, that has the ability to choose to love me or not for my pleasure. This pleases me. I will create man and we'll have fellowship with Him. Acts 9.5, there's another interesting verse when Jesus appeared to Paul in person. This chapter calls him Saul. The names are, are different based upon the Greek or the Jewish name. And he said, who art thou, Lord? Jesus came to him personally to call him to be an apostle. And he's the writer of Philippians. And it's important to remember he is because he met Christ and he was saved. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What he refers to here is that they would take the oxen 
And they would put the burden upon him. They would put the harness upon the ox so that it could pull the burden. And when the ox started to go his own way, they had a long stick with a pointy end that they called the ox goad. And that's what he's calling the pricks. They would reach out to the ox and they would prick it and say, no, you're supposed to go this way. But if the oxen would get angry and would stop in the way and would kick against that poking in that direction, it would lead to more poking and more direction. And Jesus was saying, Paul, you're running into something that's difficult and it's led you into great wickedness and error because God Almighty is poking you and prodding you and saying, this is the right way. This is the truth. This is the direction you are to turn. And you're kicking against it. You're stopping and kicking backwards. But the way to find joy, peace, and fulfillment is not to kick back and reject the truths of the Word of God that poke us and say, you're a sinner, you must repent, you must turn, you must accept Christ by faith, you must obey the Word of God. The truth, the way to find true joy is not to kick against that and break free from what God has said, but to submit to it. And in submission, the oxen would turn and go and now would be in harmony with the one who was driving him and would be fulfilling the existence for which he was designed and created. And God says to Paul and to us, if you submit to the truth of the word of God, that is how you find joy. That is how you find fulfillment. And I know this about you, Christ says, because I created you. So I know what you need. I know what brings you joy. Proverbs 13, 15, good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. In other words, the one who lives his life in constant transgression of the law of God, saying, I will not obey, I will kick against the pricks, I will not submit, is headed for a difficult life. And rejecting the truths of the Bible does not bring us joy, it brings us difficulty. Someone gets a brand new Ferrari. How much do those cost, John? $400,000. We'll go with it. And they're excited to get it. And they say, well, I guess before I start driving it all around for fun, I'm going to look at this car manual and see what they have to say about the product they designed. Huh. This says I have to service it and put oil in it. Oil is expensive. It's a waste of time. I don't feel like putting oil in this car. It says I shouldn't drive this car 387 miles an hour on the highway. It's not safe. It says I have to stop and put gas in it. And you know how much gas is right now. And take the manual and throw it away. Whoever wrote this is such a killjoy. They're trying to ruin the good time I wanted to have with this car. No, that's ridiculous. It's written from someone who designed it, who made it, who says, yes, it can be used for great joy and blessing, but only if it is within the parameters for which it was designed. In like manner, we could read the Bible and see the rules and regulations that God said, thou shalt not this and thou shalt not that and thou shalt this and thou shalt that. And we could get the idea of this is just written to take away my joy. This is written to take away my fun. But God says, no, I'm the one who made man. There's great blessing in joy. There's great blessing in human existence, in gender, in human sexuality and on and on and on and on we could go. But God says, since I designed it, you need to know what the parameters are, which I have set for it, because that which I've given you that is good, that can be a blessing. If it's kept in what I've designed it for, can lead to destruction. If you're disobeying me and disobeying my word, Christ knows us because he made us. And the key to finding joy is not in breaking through the bounds which he has set for us to live within. It's in submitting to them. 
John 10.10, Christ says of Satan, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come so that my sheep, he's saying, might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I don't believe he's writing here saying, I'm giving you life, an abundant life, meaning name it and claim it. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I proclaim myself a millionaire by the end of next week. God will give me that abundant life. What I believe in context he's saying is I'm going to give you a life that is more abundantly joyful than a life that is lived for pleasure, achievement, or wealth. It's said of Christ in the Gospel of John, He did not come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned by the time He got here. The entire earth was under the wrath of God and abiding under it because they did not know the Savior. He said, I didn't come to condemn them, but that the world through me, my life, death, and resurrection might be saved. So He showed up not to put an end to the fun, not to bring condemnation to a group of people that didn't deserve it, but He showed up to a human race that was already cursed under the weight of sin and headed for an eternity in hell and said, let me give you light. Let me give you a way out of all that. And the life that I give you even now in this current life is more abundant than the life you live currently where you are rejecting my word. Galatians 5 tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. In other words, if the Holy Spirit abides in our life, there should be fruit that comes from that Spirit. And we should bring forth and manifest specific things that can be seen. Love, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. And amongst those is joy. Meekness and temperance against such there is no law. And evidence of a life that is saved by God is a life that joy is present. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we should always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you. In other words, we get the idea in the picture that as we live a hopeful, joyful Christian life, people will come to us and ask us, what is the hope that is within you? Why are you not rattled by what is rattling us? Why are you able with the saints of God to say, if we perish, we perish. If I die, I'm not afraid of death. If you lock me up for disobeying your unbiblical order, I will joyfully go to prison and preach the gospel there. What is giving you that hope? And then we should be ready to answer them. It's Christ. It's salvation. It's His Word. It's my home in heaven. But God wants us to live a life where the fruit of the Spirit is showing joy to others around us to the place that at some point, maybe sometime, people come up and ask us, why do you have hope? Why do you have joy? This is the day which the Lord hath made, the psalmist said. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe sometimes we will have to say, thank you, Lord, that every day is not like today. But there's a specificity to this verse where he says, this day that I'm living, God made it, so I should rejoice in it. And I believe by implication he's saying, where I am today, what my lot in life is today, my day, my life, my lot. Because God is good, I will praise Him. And when I praise Him, He gives me joy. And I will not spend my time looking around at other people and saying, well, this family has this that I wish I had. And this guy has this that I wish I had. But rather, I will look to my life, to my house, to my lot, to my very day that I'm living and say, God has made it and put me here for an eternal purpose to give Him glory. So I will rejoice and be glad in today. And whatever today brings, thank you, God, I rejoice in that. Thank you for giving me joy. 
In John, we're moving to the end of our, our scriptures here. I have some uh, clustered together from the Gospel of John. John is very unique in that it follows Christ's life up to John chapter 13. And after John 13, Christ gets up from the Last Supper with His 11 disciples and goes on a long walk out to the garden. And as they walk, there's chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. That's just the disciples on a walk with Jesus having a talk about what is to come. And though he's told them, they're going to destroy this temple. And three days later, I'll, I'll rise it again. Uh, they're going to kill me. And Peter said, I'll not let you die. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. What you're knowing, not what you say at this moment. They still were missing it. They still were not ready for what was to come. They still were waiting for Jesus to say, that's it. I'm taking the throne. Get these Romans out of here. And I'm restoring the kingdom right now in Jerusalem. He kept trying to tell them that part of the promises of the Old Testament. I'm setting aside. I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to achieve a greater victory for you and for my name than if I were to punish the earth for their sins now I'm going to die for the sins of the earth so that you might have hope and redemption and then you're going to be busy going all around the world telling people Jesus died for your sins and you can get saved and someday at a future day that you don't know I'll come back and set up my kingdom so he's trying to prepare them for joy but for sorrow before the joy and he's hours away from being brutalized on the cross and those 11 guys being scattered all over the place in fear for their life. Okay, John 14. I'm going to move quickly through these here. Let's take them to heart. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And they're just walking along with Jesus. Yeah, let not your heart be troubled. No, I'm trying to tell you, Jesus is saying, I want you to have peace, but it's not like the peace the world gives. It's deeper, it's more meaningful, and it is not dependent upon circumstances. So I'm trying to tell you, don't let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, because in just a couple of minutes, you're going to be troubled and afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Okay, so I'm getting ready to go away, but I will give you the comforter. You will have joy and peace, not because everything is going the way that you thought it would go, not because the narrative you had in your mind is what I'm going to do, but because of the presence of God within. And because you love me, we do what? We rejoice in God's plan. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And ye now therefore have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. He's headed for the cross. They are headed for persecution and eventually martyrdom. But he's saying, you will have sorrow. So the Christian life is not escapism. It's not ignoring the sorrow that is there. But it's Christ saying, you will have the sorrow. But I want you to know that in spite of the sorrow, it's only for a little bit. I am coming back. I am going to set things right. You will see me again and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no man taketh from you. Joy cannot be taken from you or me. It has to be surrendered. Well, they persecuted me. 
They took away what was mine. They did this. They took my joy. And Christ says, no, they didn't. You chose to give away your joy because your joy is not dependent on what you have or what they do to you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Christ wants our joy to be full up to the top. And remember that our joy is not dependent on circumstances. James says to the tribes that were scattered all abroad, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Is everybody with me? Is everybody okay? I'm entering that phase of the sermon where the clock is mocking me and I'm speeding up and panicking. But maybe we'll take an extra minute. Just stick with me here. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into multitude different kind of temptations. Why should we be joyful about our trials, about our sorrows? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, what you see as a trial and as a temptation, God sees as the trying of your faith that's going to bring about eternal fruit because of it. And when you are tried, you will come forth as gold. And the trying of your faith in the eyes of God is more precious than of gold that will one day perish. The book of Acts, the apostles had been preaching. They called them before the council and to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Oh yeah, they took a beating, we can read. But you sit there under the whip. You feel the blood dripping off your back because you were trying to obey the Bible. And imagine that. And then they say, all right, you can go, but don't speak in the name of Jesus. In other words, if you want to speak in the name of a generic God, go ahead and do that. Everybody believes, all these religions believe in some form of or idea of God. But when you preach and pray in the name of Jesus, you are giving the glory exclusively to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that belongs to them. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. In other words, we will obey because God says obey the government. As far as the government's commands do not contradict the word of God. But if the government says do not obey God and God says obey, I will obey. And I don't know that verse 41, Christianity is a Christianity that I possess. But they had it. And people throughout generations of the church have had it. Charles Spurgeon was... Most likely the, probably the most famous Baptist pastor in all of history. He had a ministry in London where he was called to pastor a church that had a few dozen in attendance when he was 19 years old. And with a very short amount of time, the church outgrew the thousand seat auditorium. Then they got a 3000 seat one. Then they outgrew that and built a temple that could hold 6,000 at once. And though I, in referencing him, I don't agree with everything he ever said or taught, and I don't agree with some of the Calvinist teachings that he had, but it's undeniable that God used him to preach the gospel in a mighty way. It got to the place where in order to be seated at the church, you had to get a ticket ahead of time. The members had to get a ticket not to purchase it, but because the seating was too limited. And sometimes the people stood in the back for two hours trying to get in and they still didn't make it in. And some of the members said, here, you take our ticket to their neighbor who lived across the street and said, you go here and we'll stand in the back for the entire two hour service. We don't mind. We'll stand while you take our seat because they wanted their neighbors to hear and preach the gospel. The order of service was meticulously guarded by Spurgeon himself. He picked out every hymn, every scripture reading, organized every event that took place. 
And every service, they would have two hymns. And Spurgeon said, we don't want music playing during the hymns. It's a distraction. We want to be focused on the Word. He said, I don't want a choir. We've got a 6,000 member choir and an audience of one, and that's God. And we'll all sing to Him together. Before they sang the old classic hymns, they would read every word of them out loud so the congregation could know the words that were coming and begin to set their mind upon the truth of it. And then they would recite the hymns and sing them to the Lord. They had two hymns, two prayers, one of them a very long prayer where the pastor would pray for 15 minutes, corporately making intercession for his people and what they were facing. And though we might be bored with such an event, they would sit in the pews and they would weep and they would cry out to God for Him to move, for sinners to be saved, and that their lives may be pleasing to the Lord. They had scripture reading and exposition where he read an entire chapter, not preaching a sermon, but simply pausing to explain what it meant. And then they would pray again. And then he would come and preach a 45 minute sermon based off of one verse that connected to the chapter that they had read and gave exposition of. And the people came back, not all of them every time, but twice on Sunday, a Monday night prayer meeting, a Thursday night preacher preaching meeting. And all of them were connected to the same basic format, prayer, singing, Bible reading and preaching and the Lord's table. Mark Twain is a famous author who was on a trip to London. And as his trip to London, he said, I'm going to go and to hear the famous Charles Spurgeon. And while it's debated whether or not Mark Twain was an atheist, he wrote scornfully of organized religion, of the church. And he, I believe he wrote he did not believe in heaven, hell, or the immortality of the soul. He certainly speaks as a man who did not know the Lord. He recorded in his diary how disappointed he was with this event where he thought all these people flocked to hear Spurgeon. I want to go see what the event is. I want to be entertained. He wrote disappointingly in his biography, Sunday, August 15th, 1879. Raw and cold, a drenching rain. Went to hear Mr. Spurgeon. House three quarters full, say 3,000 people. First hour minus one minute was taken up with two prayers, two ugly hymns and a scripture reading. Sermon was three quarters of an hour long. He was a fluent talker, a good sonorous voice. The topic was treated in the unpleasant old fashioned Man, a mighty bad child. God working at him in 40 ways and having a world of trouble with him. A wooden-faced congregation just the sort to see no incongruity in the majesty of heaven, stooping to plead and sentimentalize over such and see in their salvation an important matter. On the same trip, he recorded in his diary glowingly of his visit with Charles Darwin and how enthralled he was with him and his intellect, yet how disappointed he was in this very basic church gathering. You see, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, and church is not here to entertain and make a spectacle and draw in people who don't know the Lord. It's for the edification of the body of Christ that by us growing in grace, we may spread the gospel. And one person could sit there with the Holy Spirit in their heart and weep and call out to God for joy in a two-hour dry church service. While another person could sit there and say, this does not call to my intellect. This does not give me pleasure. Spurgeon spoke of one man who came from five miles away, stood two hours in line, and yet was turned away because there was not a seat for him to reach the gathering. And Spurgeon said, it's too much. Why would you even try to come? It's too far for you. You must have been so disappointed. 
And he said, Sir, no, even though I stood in line for two hours, and even though I didn't make it in, I still feel as if I've done what I ought in attempting to get in. And all the way home, I rejoiced that on the Lord's day, I was identified with His people who were gathering in His house, even though I couldn't make it in the door. When Spurgeon was in high school age, he was visiting a town and he tried to go to a church and him and another girl who he met who was his friend there agreed that it was a bad church. The preaching was not good. The people were not dedicated. And as they were sorrowful about it, the girl said, you know, I agree with what you're saying, but I still feel there's such a blessing in my heart because I'm identifying with the body of Christ. And you see the hen in the farmyard that's scratching after corn, even if she doesn't get to one or she only gets to one or two little bites, there's still some good exercise that's involved in that. She's still doing what the other hens are supposed to do. And she said, even if we go to church and we claw and scratch and we get one nugget here and one nugget there and the rest of it is terrible, we're still obeying the Word of God and being identified with His people. And in our day and age, there's a lot of places we can go. And I want to go to the church that's the most biblical, that's preaching the Word. But if I lived in a town where there wasn't any churches except for churches where I disagreed with their organization and maybe even a few of their doctrines and that the preaching wasn't very good, if that was the only place to go, by God's grace, I would still leave my family to be there so that I may identify with the body of Christ and the teachings of His Word. If you would please forgive me and give me 10 minutes longer than we take this morning. I, I know that it's too long, but I feel God would have me to keep going. And I believe it's a man's responsibility to lead his family to faithfully assemble with other believers. And if he does not do so, then he's in disobedience to the direct teachings of the Word of God. I'm not talking about missing a service here or calling people out this morning. I'm talking about an attitude that says, well, the church is off a little bit, so I'll just do my own thing. That's not the way that other generations lived. No doubt they had disagreements, but they submitted to the leadership of the church and did the best they could to be the church where they were and do it for the sake of the Lord, not for their own benefit primarily or for the people who are leading the church. They began to print Spurgeon sermons and of the 10,000 sermons he preached in his lifetime, 3,500 are still in print. You can read them on the internet. And he bemoaned the fact once that they were printing his sermons. He said, now someone may be tempted to say, why go to the gathering place? I can just read the sermon the next day. He was worried about the live stream effect before they even had it. I'm glad that we have live stream. I'm glad we have printed sermons, but they don't replace the gathering of the people of God. And what am I saying? I know I'm getting off, off topic here, but we take joy not in what the world does, but in obeying what God has said, in suffering for His name if it's necessary, and in rejoicing that we're able to do so. Spurgeon said to the man in his preacher's college, though I believe every service should be prayer, singing, worship, and preaching, feel free to change around the order of it. There's nothing in the Bible. Do what works best for your congregation. And he said, I commend the fellow I heard about who one day moved his preaching to the very first thing so that all the latecomers may for once experience the prayers and the singing. Interesting idea. Six thousand people crowded for that old style of worship and the natural man receives not the things of God. But this is our joy and privilege to identify with Christ and to fellowship with His people. I'm going to skip John 16 here, this passage, but He reminded them a little while and I go to my Father. A little while and you will see me again 
and this brings us joy. He says you will have sorrow. You will weep and lament, but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. And the same child that causes the weeping and the travail and the pain in childbirth is the same child that causes joy. And Jesus was letting them know, a little while, a little while, you will have sorrow, but it's going to be turned to joy. It's temporary. All of our stripes are stripes that can heal. All of our emotional wounds and bitterness are wounds that can be taken away by God over time. And we'll be preaching beginning the week after the concert on the judgment of the nations and give a little bit of an overview of end times doctrine and the redemptive ark that God promises us is a cause for joy that one day will end in heaven. When Jesus ascended up into heaven, he told them he was coming back in like manner, the angel said, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Why do we, are we joyful? Because we're going to heaven one day. Because our sins will be taken away. Our sin nature will be taken away. Our weeping, our bitterness, our anxiety, our depression, all of which is real, is not forever. But joy in the house of the Lord is forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. One of the ways of understanding something is say it in the opposite way. In other words, since in this life only, since we have hope in Christ, not just in this life, but for eternity, we are of all men most joyful, should be the cry of the Christian. To close this morning, we remember our greatest source of joy And that is our salvation. Jesus had 70 disciples. He sent them out to evangelize and to prepare the way and say, Jesus is coming to preach. Get ready. And they came back and they returned to him with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In other words, you should expect that the devils are subject to God. Then he says, Behold, I will give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And that does not mean bring snakes to church next week, but I don't have time to explain why. Just don't do it. (laughs) Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, your joy is not related to your performance. I achieved this. I'm joyful. Jesus says, someday you may not achieve. Your primary course of joy, source of joy is not what you do for me, but it's in what I have done for you. Your name is written in heaven and that source of joy will never be taken from you. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let such as love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Habakkuk says, though God's judgment will not be turned away, The fig tree won't blossom. Fruit won't be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail. The field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. There shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. That always gives us cause to say, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him who is the health of my countenance in my God. And if you wake up tomorrow morning and feel great, your name's written in heaven. If you wake up tomorrow morning and feel like I'm not going to live to see the night, your name is still written in heaven. If the church is full Sunday morning, my name is written in heaven. And if it's empty, my name is written in heaven. And whether I'm free or in jail, abounding or suffering, I am a child of God. And I have a reason to rejoice. Spurgeon was raised by his grandfather who was a pastor. 
He was very religious, yet he never made Christ's atonement personal. And he struggled between the ages of 10 and 15 with guilt and anxiety and even curiosity about atheism. But he was seeking the truth. January 6, 1850, the 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon was trudging up the hill in Colchester, England on his way to church. He had determined to visit every church while he was home on his school break so that he may try to find the truth. And a blizzard stopped him dead in his tracks and prevented him from making it further down the street. So he turned the corner and saw a small primitive Methodist church and went inside for a service that was in progress. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning. Snowed up, I suppose. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort went up into the pulpit to preach. And I'll say this morning, like my father used to say, if something happens to me on the way to church or five minutes before, if I get laryngitis or hit by a car and we don't have time to bring in a guest speaker, one of you men take one of the texts from the Word of God and get up and read it. If it's five minutes, God will bless the reading of His Word. And this man stood up to fill in for the pastor and Spurgeon says he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason was he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, Look! Now that does not take a deal of effort, the man said. It ain't lifting your foot or finger. It is just look. Well, a man may not need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man may need not be worth a thousand a year to look. A thousand a year was a good income. It was in England too, so I don't know what he meant. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. The good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. Spurgeon says when he had gotten about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. <laughs> well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment I saw the sun. I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them the precious blood of Christ. Joy is not 
ignoring the pain and brokenness, but having a concrete, unshakable joy no matter the circumstance. And God can use a man who's never preached before to preach one verse and the Holy Spirit does the work. What consolation there is to know. It's not in my ability to be good at explaining the gospel. But if I give it, the Holy Spirit will smite that heart. And God changed an entire city and thousands of souls' eternal destination because one man was faithful to preach. And we all can say at the moment that we received Christ as Savior, could we not sing with as much joy as anyone has ever sung? If we find no reason to rejoice this morning, let us rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Let's bow for prayer. Melissa, if you would play, let's still... I'm sorry for the time this morning. This is 10 minutes longer than we planned to go, like to go. But let's lift up our request to the Lord this morning. The music will will play if you'd like to pray at the altar in your seat. Let's pray to God about anything He's spoken to our hearts about this morning and rejoice that our names are written in heaven.